We are down to verse 23. And Paul now brings his long discussion of the question of sacrificial food to a close. And in doing so, he recapitulates the points of his argument and states the comprehensive principles by which all questions of conscience are to be resolved. Paul has been conduct, uh, conducting with his readers about the responsible uses of our Christian freedom and what and and, and all that seem to in, in be enclosed in that. There were those in Corinth who felt that the exercise of their freedoms as Christians was all that mattered. Uh, there was no thought to the negative effect that this had on the consciences of others. Uh, this is to elevate a wrong priority, which is self-satisfaction above God's dominant concern, which is that I am to love my brother. Jesus said, you are to love one another as I have loved you. We are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And so Paul here is, the Corinthians had taken this, uh, this Christian freedom, which there was nothing wrong with their Christian freedoms. It was a gift of God. But they had taken it and used it for selfish reasons. Uh, look at verse 23, and we'll read down through verse 30. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? All things are lawful, Paul says, but not all things are helpful. He reminds his readers that it is much more important to ask the question, what's right with it, rather than what's wrong with it. Paul says that not all things build up. One of the, one of the characteristics of, of those of us who are followers of Christ is this right here, that we are to edify one another. We are to encourage one another. We are to build one another up. But Paul says, yes, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. Uh, Paul has in mind not only the individual member, uh, members of our own edification, but for that uh, of the edification of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Verse 24 stresses the point, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his own neighbor. Now, isn't that what we naturally do anyway? No, it is not. 
It is not what we naturally do. But you see, this uh, is the distinctive use of his freedom that marks the Christian lifestyle as being different from the world. Remember, we, 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 we must throw this in there. Well, I don't want to say throw this in there because it belongs here. God says, be holy for I am holy. To be holy means to be separate. And you and I are called to be different in this world. And to be different uh, is, is that we see that our Christian freedoms and our lifestyles are to be different from those of the world. Each of our lives impacts many others around us. But we often seek our own satisfaction. We often seek, uh, seek our own selfish edification. But Paul says that conventional human wisdom tells me, look out for number one. Always take care of yourself. And from such an attitude springs all the stresses and the breakdowns that happen within human relationships at home, at work, and in the church. Is when we say it's what I desire, it's what I want, and, and, and I have a right and a freedom to do these things. And, you know, have you ever heard the expression, just because you can doesn't mean you should? That's what Paul's saying here. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. To seek the good of others is totally revolutionary. For me to live my life to where everything that I do is for the good of you. You know, that, that, that's, a, that's a very strong principle in marriage. Is that when I get married and I have a bride, everything that I do to love my wife, as Christ loved the church, goes like this. Everything I do has her in mind and her good, her edification, her building up. But you see, it works the same for her, too. She used to do that. And, I, and, and, and the, to, to say, you know what, I'm number one. I have a right to do this. I have a right to do that. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Well, I got news for you. Somebody is always going to tell you what to do. It's either going to be a parent. It's going to be a boss. It's always going to be It's going to be your wife. It's going to be your husband. But somebody's always going to be telling us what to do. And so to, to, to do everything that we do to... See the good in someone else. To see them build belt up. This is totally revolutionary. And it requires me to love you more than I love me. And listen, folks, that is thoroughly Christ-like. That is Christ-like for me to put the good of others above my own. And, and, and Paul is saying here to these believers in Corinth, he says, look, yes, there, there's nothing wrong with eating food sacrificed to idols, for idols are nothing. He said they don't even exist. They're demons. They're not gods. And he says that because you can doesn't mean you should. I have a right to do a lot of things. 
But how will that impact my wife, my children, my grandchildren? As a pastor, I have a right to do a lot of things, but how will that impact you? That's the things that I have to look at. And this is what Paul's talking about. We are to mirror the holiness and the righteousness of God. Now, you tell me, any other person you ever heard, any other person you've ever known of that, that displayed this tendency of putting the good of others above themselves more than the Lord Jesus Christ did. Jesus, who came to this earth, lived a perfect sinless life, and was crucified by the hands of sinful men on a cross. Why? Why did he let that happen? You know, he told his disciples, he says, don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels? By the way, that's about 120,000 angels. He said, don't you know I could call them and in a moment they would rescue me? He said, but I didn't. You know why he didn't? It's because he said, if I do, Bobby will spend eternity in hell. Laura will spend eternity in hell. Tim will spend eternity in hell. So Jesus said, I'm putting their good above my own rights. Did Jesus have a right to claim to be king? Yes, he did. He is king. And, but he, he, the, Paul tells us that he laid aside these attributes for our good. So it requires me, and, and this is the important thing here, in the Christian life, it requires me to love you more than I love me. Now, again, isn't that something that we naturally do? No. It's always about me. But the Christ-like attitude is, I want, to know, I want you to know that even though I have a right to do this, if it offends you, if it offends your conscience, I'm not going to do this. Paul's already been talking about this. You know, he says, you know, uh, he says, if my brother is offended when I eat meat, he said, I'm not going to eat meat. He said, there's nothing wrong with meat. He said, meat's good for you. Meat's good. I love a good steak, Paul says. But if it offends a weaker brother, I'm not going to eat it. It's just that simple. Why? Because I love you more than I love me. And that's what he's talking about. But how does all of this principle work in the area of food sacrifice to idols? Well, there in verses 25 through seven, uh, 27, Paul emphasizes one aspect of this principle. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising the, any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go... Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. This indicates that a believer is not to be involved in deta detailed research of matters of, you know, th there, there are people that when something comes along, when something happens in any situation, they're, they're, they're digging and digging, trying to find the evil in it. I want to tell you something, folks. You don't have to look far. It's there in this world. In a fallen world, it will always be there. Verse 26, he says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul quotes Psalm 24 and verse 1. And this reminds us of the thankfulness in Paul's worldview rather than, you ready for this? 
Paul was thankful more than he was critical. And criticism is, is a trap into which many Christians seem to fall. As we delight in God, we delight also in the wonder and the beauty and the variety that expresses God, uh, uh, the nature and the character of our Creator. And, and such Christians are neither afraid to mix in the company of unbelievers. Now, not in a way that appears to affirm their sin, but we're not afraid to mix in the company of unbelievers, nor are we afraid to share with them the good things of our Creator. God has given us. Paul tells us that God gives us all things richly to enjoy. In verse 27, he says, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. This is the necessary justification for Christians to be socially involved with, in, in normal human ways within our society. Gather with unsaved friends and family. Be salt and light to them. Be, an eye, be a witness to Christ in the midst of this. Paul's already said, <clears throat> you know, in another place, Paul says that we are not to associate with those who have fallen into sin and refuse to repent. But Paul makes it clear that he's talking about fellow believers he said, I'm not talking about the world. He said, if, if, if you felt that way about the world, he said, nobody would ever get saved because we wouldn't be associating with them. We would be able to present to them the gospel. And so he's, he's telling us that, that we need to be careful, but we need to be salt and light to those around us. He says, uh, Notice that he says, if, anyone, if one of the unbelievers invites you to, to dinner and you are disposed to go, that kind of means you don't have a choice. He says, eat what is set before you. He says, when they set before you this food, don't ask them if this food's been, in, in, it's been sacrificed to idols. He said, don't even start that up. He said, just eat what is set before you. And, and then verse 29, though, uh, or verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 28 shows the other side of it. He says, but if someone says to you, this food has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you for the sake of conscience. When the Corinthian Christian visits the home of an unbelieving friend for a meal and is specifically informed this has been offered in sacrifice, then the whole scenario changes. We are to politely but firmly refuse uh, must refuse the food show as not so as to show that we do not willingly and knowingly have any participation with idols. Now I think about it I, when I was studying this, I remembered a, an incident many years ago when the, this couple in the church, they invited us over for dinner and they invited another couple who were fairly young Christians to come and we all sat down to eat. <clears throat> and our host and his wife, they brought out the bottles of wine and started drinking it. Didn't bother me. I didn't care. But the other couple, the wife, leaned over and whispered something to her husband, and then the husband stood up, made his apologies, and they left. 
And the host, he was just indignant about this. He said, I don't understand. He said, I can't believe we fixed this nice meal, and they just get up and just leave. Now, I knew something he didn't know that I informed him. And I said, it's because you were drinking wine. And he said, well, whoop-de-doo. He said, it's my house. I can drink what I want in my house. He needs to grow up. He needs to learn to, to, to be a more mature Christian about this. And I said, well, what you don't know is that before he, when he got saved, he's a recovering alcoholic. And I said, now, was exercising your freedom to drink the wine worth it? And, you know, to his credit, he went to that man and he begged his forgiveness and sought reconciliation with him. But you see, this is what Paul's saying. <laughs> Suppose that man had cooked something, some kind of sauce that had alcohol in it. Because you see, the, 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 uh, the other couple who were new Christians, when he, he as a recovering alcoholic, they became, to what's that word? Teetotalers. I mean, didn't want to touch alcohol whatsoever. What if that man had put it inside some kind of a sauce and this man didn't know it? He would have eaten the sauce and never had a problem. But what if he'd have said, you know what, is that sauce good? Well, don't you know I put alcohol in it? Then that man would have had a right to refuse it. And that's what Paul's saying. But the point is this. The man that invited us over for dinner, he, he was a mature Christian which that shows by the fact that he, you know, felt bad and went and made things right with the guy. But the point was he, he, he was wrong in saying, you know what, it's my house. I can do what I want to here. And that's just not true. You know what he was saying? He was saying, I love me more than I love you. And Paul says that, that uh, such a refusal is an act of love towards the pagan host. It makes clear to him how distinctly different the gospel is and does not compromise his witness to be uh, the one with the one true God and the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. By taking this clear stand, once the reality is explained to the unbelieving friend, the Christian will be true to his own convictions. And I got to tell you, I studied this message all week long, and it wasn't until this very moment that I realized how much this relates to something that's been going on in the Christian community in the last week or so. If you all know what I'm talking about with Alistair Begg, I, that did not dawn on me till just this moment. But this is what he's saying. Paul's saying, look, to refuse to eat that is actually an act of love. And it's showing, look, here's where I stand. I, we talked about this last week, folks. Listen, as believers, you and I must take a stand on what we know is the truth. There can be no compromise. And here's the thing. Unbelievers, believe it or not, they need to see that in us. You know, one thing I learned years ago as a parent, my children would rebel, okay? If you've ever had children, tell me that they'd have never done that. Do they rebel? Do they fight against everything you do? 
Every restriction you put on them, they, they, they will push it to the limit. But I want to tell you something I learned. Children want those boundaries. Now, they may not know they want them, but they want them. You know why? Because it's a sense of security. They will rebel against it. And you and I, we do the same thing with God. But in the Christian life, there are certain, and, and the world looks at us, and they see that we have these boundaries to where we say, I will go no further. I will not compromise my convictions. I will stand upon the truth of God's word, and I will not move beyond this point. And here's the thing. They want to see that. They need to see that. Look at verse 29 and 30. Paul says, I don't mean your conscience, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I give thanks? It is better not to partake at all in the meal than for an act of freedom and thanksgiving to be denounced as hypocrisy. And the force of the argument still pertains to our witness today, the clarity of which can, can so easily be obscured by compromise even if that compromise is due to fear of causing offense. We are so afraid that people are going to be mad at us. We are so afraid that somebody's not going to like us. We are so afraid that someone's going to disagree with us. And so we say, I know this is the right thing to do, but you know what? I'm going to do this to keep the peace. That's a compromise. Truth must always always be at the forefront. Even if there's disunity, truth is more important than unity. And Paul says there, he says, look, uh, we need to understand that we cannot compromise what we know to be the truth. And then we see the application of this. Look at verse 31. Paul says, so whatever you eat or drink... Or so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Be imitators of me as... I am an entertainer, as I am of Christ. The word so at the beginning of verse 31 tells us that the argument's about to be summarized, and Paul does this with a challenge. The principle which governs everything else, eating, drinking, abstaining, or any other area of behavior, is stated as a command. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As I stated last week, I'll state it again today. How radically different would our lives be if everything I did, I did with God's glory in mind? Can you imagine how much different our marriages would be if I sought her good more than mine? 
if she sought my good more than hers? Can you imagine how much different our, our relationships would be if we loved our brothers more than ourselves? How much different would our churches be if we loved one another the way that Jesus has loved us and that everything we do, everything I do, how will this glorify God? Will this glorify God? If it won't glorify God, I'm not going to do it. May not be anything wrong with it. But if it's not going to glorify God, that makes it enough. So Paul says we are to do all to the glory of God. This is our first responsibility. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Listen, folks, let me tell you about glorifying God, something you may not know, but you, you need to. All of us live lives that are pointing to a destination. And that destination is when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as the judge of all the earth. Do you know what the purpose of it is? To glorify God. Do you know what the purpose of your salvation is? It's not so you'll be happy and, and, and it's not even to keep you out of hell. The purpose of your salvation is to glorify God. Everything points to glorifying God. By the way, he deserves it. For the simple fact that he's God. And so Paul says this is our first responsibility. And, and verse 33, we see this, that, that the salvation of others is Paul's motivation. He says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many, that they may be saved. Now, it almost sounds like Paul's saying, look, I'm, I'm going to compromise and give in. That's not what he's talking about here. He, he, Paul says he will use his freedoms to deny himself the rights which are freely his if that means that someone else will come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, Charles Spurgeon one time said, he said, if you have no desire to see others saved, he said, then I have reason to doubt that you're saved yourself. You see, Paul, the, the whole thing behind Paul's ministry, he had two things in mind. The glory of God and the salvation of others. Everything that Paul did pointed to those two things right there. Paul's uh, own good in terms of comfort and status or any other personal goal is not his agenda. He took all of that and he shoved it to the side. And his own behavior uh, is set free to serve others. To, to please them in any way that does not compromise the gospel so as to win them to Christ. Listen, in our day, there are preachers standing in pulpits that are watering down the gospel to make it more acceptable to people. And I'll tell you what he's doing. He is leading millions to hell because it won't work. Once there can be no compromise in the truth of God's word in any kind of way, shape, form, or fashion. And Paul, so he is not doing that. Paul says he will not compromise. Where did Paul discover such an extraordinary reversal of his pre-Christian attitude. You know, Paul, he also had another name, Saul. Saul was a Pharisee. Saul hated Jesus. Saul hated what was called the way, what we call Christianity today. And so Saul set out with threatenings 
with signed orders. He would gather up all the believers that he could find and he would have them thrown into prison. My mind just went blank. What's the man's name in Acts that was stoned to death? Stephen. When Stephen was being stoned and he died and those who were throwing the stones there was a man over here and he was holding their, their, their coats for them while they were doing it. You know what his name was? His name was Saul. He hated Christians. He hated Jesus. And then one day Saul's on his way to a place called Tarsus. And as Saul is going along on the road, uh, I'm sorry, to Damascus, and on the way road to Damascus, and all of a sudden there's a bright light appears to him. He falls to the ground. And he hears this voice that says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, well, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus. Now, from that moment on, Saul was different. Now, God, don't get the idea that God changed his name from Saul to Paul. He didn't do that. Paul is just his Greek name, where Saul was his Hebrew name. But they, from that moment, that's where Paul found the extraordinary reversal. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Now, none of us, and probably no one else, in the history of the world, has ever had such a dramatic encounter with Jesus after your salvation. But it's just as real nonetheless. And here's the thing. Paul had such an extraordinary reversal in his pre-Christian attitude. He, he learned to live in such a radically different way for one simple reason. He came face to face with Jesus. Listen, do you want to know how to love others more than you love yourself? Husbands, you want to know how to love your wife more than yourself? Wives, you want to know how to love your husbands more than yourself? Do you want to know how to love your fellow church members more than you love yourself? Have a face-to-face -face encounter with Christ. That's how you do it. That's what changed Paul. And that's why it says in verse 1 of chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am in, uh, of Christ. Listen, I can stand up there and I can say, you know, Paul, the Bible tells me that as a pastor, well, Tim and I both as, as elders in this church, that we are to be an example to the flock. You're to follow us. You're to imitate us. But listen, you only need to imitate me as I imitate Christ. If I'm not imitating Christ, then you don't need to be imitating me. And this was Paul. Paul. Paul is a great model of both gospel ministry and committed gospel discipleship, but only because he was following so closely to Jesus. Are we, are you doing that? Husbands, are you following so close to Christ that that changes your life? Wives, are you following so close to Christ that that changes your life? Church member, are we following so close to Christ that it changes our lives? The example of Christ is one of self-sacrifice through sufferings, even to the point of the cross. Jesus gave himself 
in a self-sacrificing way. As he hung on the cross, you know, in a few moments we're going to come to the Lord's table. That's what this is all about. Remember. Okay, what's it say on the front of there? Well, y'all probably can't read it because that thing. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what? I mean, we just say, oh, I remember Jesus. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, remember what I did. Remember the body that was broken on the cross. Remember the blood that was poured out at the cross. You know, I, I want to point out here, because I heard someone say this. I heard, I've heard this many times, but I heard it again this week. Somebody, this, this preacher was talking about how the blood of Christ was spilled at the cross. And that's not true. Because when you spill something, that's an accident. His blood was poured out at the cross. And so Paul says that the example we have, Paul says, I want to be your example as I am, in, as Christ is my example. Make Christ your example. Imitate me as I am of Christ. And the challenge to our own comfort zones and the easygoing part-time Christian discipleship is profound, is it not? I mean, would you disagree with me that today we see this kind of Christianity in our churches, a, a, a comfort zone, easygoing, part-time Christian? We do. And Paul says that won't work. That will not work. It is the greatest joy and privilege in all the world to be able to say from the heart, be imitators of Christ. The Corinthian Christians, <clears throat> they were puffed up. They were arrogant. They were prideful. You know, we're, we're going to see as Paul gets into chapter 12, especially about spiritual gifts, just how prideful they were. And Paul is telling them, You may be saved. You know, somebody asked me one time. Well, they told me, actually. When, it was when I was first become a Christian, and I said, you know what? I've been saved. I, I follow Christ. My sins are forgiven. And I'll never forget this guy looked at me, and he said, well, you just don't forget. You ain't no better than anybody else. And I thought, that was years later, I thought to myself, why would he even say that? Why would he even think that? Could it be because that's sometimes how we present ourselves? You know, I'm spiritual. You know, I'm, I'm a pastor. I know the Bible better than you. You don't even need your Bibles. Just listen to me. Don't do that, by the way. That's what Paul's talking about. But we have a tendency to look down on other people who, who we don't think are as spiritual. They fall into some sin, and we're just sitting there saying, Oh, you poor, terrible person. When what we need to do is say, But Paul, there before the grace of God go I. And so Paul is telling these Corinthian believers, and to us, put away your pride. Put away your self-sufficiency. Put away your self-love. Be an imitator of Christ. And when we follow Him, you know, Jesus said, 
If anyone does not deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him, we can't be his disciple. You know, to follow doesn't mean to just see where his footsteps are and follow where he went. When Jesus said, follow me, he meant be like me. Think like me. Paul talks about us having the mind of Christ. And we need to learn to think like him. We need to act like him. Become more like him. And you know what they say? Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. You want to imitate Christ? You want to show Jesus how much you love who he is? And say, Lord, I want to be just like you. You know, I'll never forget my youngest son. Now, my youngest son now is 30-something years old. He's about 6'3 and weighs about 280 pounds. And I will never forget that little boy was about six years old looking at me and saying, Daddy, I want to be just like you. That's one of the highlights of my life. Can you imagine looking at Christ and saying, Lord, I want to be like you. Now, here's the thing. My son has a lot of similarities to me, but he's not just like me. I'm not saying that's good or bad. He's just not like me, completely like me. But I can be like Christ because he has promised I could. That is the goal. That is the ultimate thing. When we get there and God looks at me, God the Father looks at me and says, you look just like Jesus. You act just like him. So we need to be imitators of Christ. Loving others more than we love ourselves. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, Father, forgive our selfishness. Forgive our self-centeredness. May we learn to be imitators of Christ. Father, that we may be bold to make a stand for what we know is right. To never compromise the convictions of your truth. Father, this morning as we come to your table, I pray that we would meet Christ here this morning. That we would remember what he's done for us. The self-sacrifice. The love. And Father, that we would determine to go forth and be imitators of Jesus. For we ask it in his dear name. Amen. We're going to take just a moment. I'm going to ask you to just take a moment in silent prayer before you come to the Lord's table.